over these next few weeks, actually. Romans chapters 9 through 11. Romans is a book or a letter in the Bible that was written to the church that was gathering in the city of Rome. Rome, the belly of the beast, the belly of the Roman Empire, right? And this church, they are comprised of both Jews and Gentiles. And both parties, very different backgrounds, very different approaches and ways that they have found Christ, both parties are struggling how to get along, how to reconcile their very different backgrounds, united in their faith under Christ. And, and the, the Gentiles, you kind of, as you read this letter, you get, the, you get the picture that the Gentiles were getting a little too big for their britches. They were a little too proud, a little too arrogant, a little too uh, high and mighty, lording, you know, the grace of the Lord over their, their Jewish brothers and sisters. But in response, that immaturity was met with immaturity as well. And the Jews were kind of coming back saying, hey, 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 we were here first. We've got first dibs on God. And so there's this immaturity going on in the church. And so Paul writes this letter to bring a clear, unified perspective on who Jesus is, what the gospel is all about, and how it's for both Jews and Gentiles, and how that looks together as one family, the family of God. Today we're going to come to a new section in this very long letter, Romans 9 through 11, uh, which I've struggled with in my preparation in sharing with you today, not because I don't think I understand it, but because its content is so thorough and uh, yet so distant to the average reader, especially Canadians in 2024. It is a beautiful and masterful section of Scripture, but it uses Jewish thought to explain the gospel. And most of us do not think like a Jew. And yet it is also brilliant because he uses the Old Testament to preach the New Testament. New Testament theology from Old Testament theology. He's saying to both Gentiles and Jews, it's been there all along, and I'll prove it to you. And chapters 9 through 11, but really the whole letter as well, but specifically chapters 9 through 11 are are an incredible exposition, an incredible demonstration that the gospel is there in the Old Testament as well. And so Jews can see that and hold on to that and walk into its fullness with their Gentiles, brothers and sisters. The first mistake that people make when reading Romans 9 through 11 is they read just chapter 9 on its own, as its own unit. But you have to read Romans 9 through 11 as a whole to understand chapter 9, which is hard for us, because I timed it. It takes me 14 minutes to read Romans 9 through 11. And in a fiber optic world, ain't nobody got time for a 14-minute download, am I right? That's the days of dial-up. We're not there anymore. The second mistake that people make that happens when you read only chapter 9 as its own little part is they mine from it this belief that that God arbitrarily chooses who goes to hell and who goes to heaven. 
And while the subject of individual salvation, that is, who goes to heaven and who goes to hell, is an aspect of its, impl- of its application, this whole section is answering the question, how could so many Jews, the people of God, how could so many Jews reject Jesus? They, of anybody, should be the most excited, most prepared to welcome and to receive Jesus, and yet they were the ones that nailed him to the cross. Did God fail them? These are the questions that this text answers. Can his word be trusted? What's going on? And what about those Gentiles? Those backwood pagans? They're coming to Jesus in droves. How could those ignorant, wicked people stumbling in the dark find the door to heaven while Jews who had the map keep stumbling and cannot find it? These are the questions that Paul is asking and answering in Romans 9 through 11. It's the overarching purpose for what he writes. And Paul uses the Old Testament to prove his point. And somehow I'm to share with you both the meaning and the application of Romans 9 through 11 with you in one sitting, of which you graciously give any preacher up here on a Sunday 30 to 40 minutes of your attention, if that. To which some of us will say, well, then preach longer then. We're good. We, We want it. And I say, well, why is it that those that want the preacher to preach longer, the first ones to say, yeah, preach longer, they're the last ones to sign up for Sunday school. You might have the grace to spend more time in God's Word than others, but do you have the grace to sit with a little one or in a room that's really loud and love them where they're at and lead them from where they're at? So can we all today rise to the challenge and extend grace to one another? Some of you could sit here for hours while others of you are done after five minutes. I've been in both places. Wherever you are in the spectrum, your maturity is measured by your grace unto others, not how much time you spend studying God's Word. So, without further ado, let's draw our attention back to Romans 9 to 11. Today is simply going to be a primer. You know that coat of paint that gets smucked between the ugly underneath and the nice top coats that go over top? Today will be a primer on Romans 9 to 11 so that when we roll it on our lives, so to speak, in the weeks to come, it might properly adhere, making the fruit of our attention and attendance to God's word together be long-lasting, profitable, and beautiful. What is this primer made of? I'm going to highlight nine ingredients. We, uh, nine ingredients that we, as the people of God, need to get into our thinkers so that the terms and the imagery that Paul uses in these chapters, that Paul paints in these chapters, can reveal their true beauty. Now, in your newsletter, we put an insert in there to help you follow along as well, to take, take home with you, uh, to, if you want to review it as well, or just let it sit there with you. Uh, lastly, then, today, we're going we're gonna to apply the primer by reading all of Romans 9 to 11. Whew, we can do it, all right? 
Here are the nine primer ingredients. I'm nicknaming them the Nifty Nine, just to, for whatever reason, all right? First, we have to understand the big picture. We have to understand the big picture about how God set out to redeem the world through a family, through a people that would become a nation. Humanity is bound by sin and death. What is God going to do? How is he going to remedy this? He doesn't want to wipe us all out. He wants to rescue us. He wants to undo what we did in the Garden of Eden. Well, just as sin entered the world through one family, God chose a family to deal with it. And he chose Abraham, a man of faith, to be the father of many nations. But one of those nations was chosen over the others to be blessed so that they could become a blessing to the others. And God miraculously gave uh, Abraham a son, Isaac, even though Abraham was 100 at the time. Sarah, his wife, was 90 at the time. They were too old to have kids. It was impossible. And yet she gave birth. It was a miracle to their son, Isaac. Proof that God was in this and proof that God did all the work that they might not boast. Then Isaac, their son, had twins. And while normally firstborn rights, the riches of the family would pass down in priority to the eldest, they went to the secondborn son, Jacob. Again, hitting home that his chosen people aren't just born into it automatically. You know, it can be accessed because of birthright. Rather, it is given and received from God. So Isaac's son, Jacob, would receive the family riches, way more important than wealth. He would receive the riches that is the promise, the covenant, the promise and the hope of salvation given through Abraham. And he Uh, Jacob, later called Israel, would then pass it on to his 12 sons who would become the famous 12 tribes of Israel, of which the author of our letter, Romans, Paul, is a descendant of one of those sons, one of those 12 sons, Benjamin. The descendants of those 12 tribes are what we call the Jewish people. These layers of generations, they are carrying the promise or the covenant, the hope of salvation, are what the Bible calls the patriarchs. And this family line, the Jewish people, stand in contrast to everyone else making, if you're either a Jew or you're a Gentile, that's the two categories of people by God's demographics and definitions. If you are not a Jew by birth, then you are a Gentile. You were born into a biological family that by birth does not carry the promise of salvation. By the way, it does not mean that you cannot receive salvation, all right? That's really important. All right, that's the longest one of the nifty nine, number one. Number two, we're going to be introduced to the unusual words, uh, sorry, the un- not unusual words, but the unusual use of the words love and hate in these three chapters. Paul's going to quote a strange um, way of capturing things in the Old Testament where it says, God loved Jacob, 
but hated Jacob's older brother Esau. Now we need to know, because at first reading you're like, what? We need to know that the use of love and hate in this context is both hyperbolic and applied in a different sense than our, than our emotional use of love and hate. We know from reading scripture that God loves all people. That is true. God is love. But Jesus, uniquely or strangely enough, he actually said in, in one of his lessons, in one of his instructions, he said, if you want to follow me, you're going to have to hate your family. If you want to love me, you're going to have to hate your family. Jesus said that. I'm supposed to hate my family? I, that doesn't make sense. That's not congruent with the character or the rest of the revelation of God through, through Scripture. And of course, he doesn't mean that in the emotional sense. This is what I'm getting at. It's a different use of the contrast of love and hate. What Jesus was saying to his disciples, he's saying this. If your family comes to you and says, if you want to be a part of this family, then you better deny Jesus. And if your family comes to you with that ultimatum, it's either us or your faith. Jesus says, you better choose your faith at the cost of your family. That's the difference between love and hate in this context in which God uh, uses it, okay? Now, of course, uh, the teachings of Christ round out this idea that we, in fact, actually are to lay down our life for our family. The context of hating our family is all about choosing who comes first, primary and secondary, love and hate. If I have to choose between the two, I am going to go with the primary every single time. Okay? Getting back to our text, this is the same of true of Jacob and Esau. God doesn't hate Esau. He's simply choosing Jacob over Esau as what? As the bearer of the promise, the promise of salvation, to whom salvation will come first. And he does so not because Jacob earned it, rather to demonstrate that the promise of salvation does not come by works, but it comes by his mercy. That's number two. Number three. Don't worry, with each one we're going to get a little faster if you're really watching the clock. Three, the hardening of hearts. In our text, it says that, uh, it recalls, sorry, the example of how God hardened Pharaoh's heart, if you're familiar with the story of Pharaoh uh, and the Israelites back in Exodus. And Paul will talk in our text, in Romans 9, he'll talk about the interchange between God and Pharaoh and how God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now, we don't have time to do a full theological dive into this topic of God hardening hearts. It would take uh, quite a few hours to really consider all of the texts of Scripture to get there. Um, but for our purposes today, in Romans 9 to 11, we need to hold a few things in context. First is... God doesn't harden hearts arbitrarily. He hardened hearts that are already hard towards him. He doesn't violate their will. He just says, okay, if that's what you want, then I'm going to throw it, you know, I'm going to put gasoline on that fire, and it's going to burn. And it's actually an act of mercy. He's accelerating the pain of our futility or our foolishness to its natural conclusion or end or increasing the symptoms that come from having a hard heart towards God 
rather than just letting it fester. It's the way that he works in and through humanity to bring about his good end. Second, when God hardens hearts, for some reason we always read into that, at least I do, we seem to think that he is, in, in, when he hardens somebody's heart, it's equated to or equivalent to him sending people to hell. And that's not what hardening of heart means in Scripture. Yes, for some, it will lead to that. But the hardening of hearts is to accelerate or magnify a faithless rebellion towards God so that, uh, that, so that, that they the one being hardened, as well as others, might see more clearly the foolishness of their way and turn back to God. When we read that God hardens somebody's heart in the Bible, He hardens them with the intent that they might break under its negative fruit so that both the hard-hearted one and those watching Him might turn to God. A hardening of heart is a way that God accelerates His plans and His purposes to get as many as will come to come, to turn to faith to God's saving mercy. Number four, we read in in, um, this section of Scripture about the potter and the clay. It comes from Jeremiah 18, who was a prophet to Israel, in which we understand that God is the potter and we are the clay. And He can do what He wants with us at the end of the day, who are we to talk back to the potter? But if you read Jeremiah 18 and Jeremiah 19, you'll actually see how the potter actually shapes people based on whether or not they want to be shaped by him. He warns them and he tells them, if you don't want to be shaped this way, then repent. They don't repent. He shapes them the way that they want to be shaped. And even then, he will still use them as agents to display his mercy in this world. Nothing goes to waste with God. Not even sin, not even wickedness, not even rebellion. He uses it all for his glory. turns it all for a good end. Okay? Five. Fancy language from the Old Testament. Terms, loaded terms, like remnant foreknowledge, election, chosen. Okay, a remnant, biblically speaking, it's Old Testament language for a smaller group of people who do not go along with the flow when the masses rebel against God. Instead, they remain a faithful minority within the majority. God spares them. Second, foreknowledge. It's simply that. It is knowledge of something before it happens. And as it relates to God, it is His divine ability to see into the future, to know how every little decision we make will play out. And God moves in the present, okay? He moves in the present based on His foreknowledge of the future. The closest I can compare it to is like he is this supercomputer that is able to process the butterfly effect. You know, like with one of the the thing where the theory where 
uh, one butterfly just flaps its wings, and it, the ripple that that causes throughout all of history. Or you, you watch these movies about people that can go back in time to try and undo something that happens bad in the future, and they go back and, and they, 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 they save this person's life or whatever it might be that they might change the future, but there's this ripple. Like, the, the, the implications of it are infinite. We can't even comprehend it. And yet God, in his divine ability, he is able to comprehend. He knows every single ripple caused by every single word we speak, action we make, thought we think. He is able to know it all ahead of time. The beginning from the end. The end from the beginning. He knows it all. That is his foreknowledge. God is so great that he can be sovereign and work all of our decisions out towards the end that he has in mind and he has prepared and he has planned for and yet not violate our free will. It's incredible. It doesn't, it can't even, those two things can't even coexist by our limited way of thinking. And yet you read a balanced read of scripture and you see both are true. He knows when to throw gas on the fire. When to harden a heart, he knows when to hold back. He knows who, who needs to win the lottery and who doesn't, who that would be good for and who that would wreck. He knows who needs to be healed and who doesn't need to be healed, knowing that even if he doesn't heal or even if you don't win the lottery, it's not because he's a jerk, but it's because he has something even greater in store as you put your hope and your faith and your trust in him, and he works out all those things for good, for an even better outcome than had you got the winning number or had you got that healing that you so desperately desired. God knows so much more than we know, and it's all kind of wrapped up in this loaded term of, of foreknowledge. Next big loaded word, election. Uh, this is the process by which God selects one way or another. God, in his foreknowledge, he elects or he selects those who will receive him. Okay, And those that he elects or selects, we read, are the ones that he has chosen. When we get into Romans 9, it's going to be a tempting view to view these concepts through the lens of individual salvation. But the context is election or selection of who is the carrier of the promise. Children of the promise is the exact phrase that Paul uses. For God desires all Jews and all Gentiles to be saved. Six, Sodom and Gomorrah. These were simply two historic towns they're referenced in the Old Testament. There's a story about them, and it recalls their end. It recalls the sin and the wickedness in which they lived by and the righteous final judgment that God mercifully uh, enacted upon both those cities in wiping them out, uh, his merciful wisdom and justice. Seven, some more fancy Old Testament language. Righteousness, law, Works and faith. Righteousness is simply right living before God as it relates to who you are 
and how you've lived your life before God and His way of life. The law is God's rules for how we are to live. Think of the, uh, um, the Ten Commandments and other rules that are given to us. If you live them perfectly, you'll be called righteous. Although it's kind of confusing because sometimes Paul and others will use the term law to refer to the Old Covenant versus the New Covenant. Sometimes they'll use it as a description or a summary for just the Old Testament itself, the Word of God. So you kind of you have to each time take it in its context to understand what he's meaning by it. Works. These are what we do in light of God's law. If we live by God's law, we conduct works of righteousness. If we go against God's law, we are workers of iniquity. I haven't heard that term in a while. We are doers of evil. We are unrighteous before God. Faith. Faith is placing your past, your present, and your future in the merciful hands of God. Believing that what He has promised for those who put their faith in Him and that He is that good and that gracious that we will actually receive what He has promised us. Salvation from sin and death. Eternal peace and presence with Him. I want to note that I actually do see a bit of a difference between faith and work. Some people say that faith is a work. And I don't really see them at the same thing, although there is a similarity to them and how you kind of approach them. But it is true that faith is, I guess, a work of sorts. But it's kind of unique in that it's an act of letting go. It's not striving or adding or laboring for something. It is sim- compared to all other works where you're going to have to do something. You have to put yourself to work. Faith, by its very nature and definition, isn't like that. It's not something you work towards or add to your life. It is something, it's simply a letting go. It's a letting go of your life so that God might hold you, not you hold you. So I don't know. I, I see that. And, and, and depending on how you interpret that and look at that, you'll kind of get different meanings from our, our text of Romans 9 through 11. And yet faith, we also read in Scripture, is a gift from God. God works on us. He calls us. He invites us. He reveals himself. He's revealed himself in history so clearly on the cross for all of humanity to hear about. And he invites us. He spoke in our language. He spoke in the flesh. Call on him. He will save you. It's his idea. It's his provision. We simply receive it by faith. Now, in a different letter in the Bible, the book of James, we'll read uh, very clearly that faith without works is dead. Meaning that belief in Jesus will always result in us desiring and wanting and working towards doing the will of God. Okay? But this time, our good works are now done in thanksgiving to His mercy, to what He's already given to us. It's not an obligation. It is, a, it is an act of love and gratitude and response to Him. We don't earn His mercy by our good works. Eight, Zion. Zion is God's mountain. It's God's city. It's the place where He dwells forevermore in an eternal age of peace, ruling over the whole of the earth. It is the fulfillment of the Messiah, It is all of earth's joy. It is heaven on earth. And our text will say that Jesus is the stumbling stone by which some men 
will not enter Zion. Nine, wild versus cultivated olive trees? What? Well, a wild olive tree is not very helpful because it grows huge and it bears little fruit in, in uh, relation or in proportion to its size. It spends most of its time, its resources, its energy on things that do not produce more fruit. It believes if I have more, I am more. I don't need, a, I don't need God in my life. I'm fine on my own. I don't want to be pruned or told what to do. That's the, the wild olive tree. And by comparison, the cultivated olive tree is one that has been pruned so strategically that it's optimized to bear the most fruit. It is submitted to the hand of the farmer that even in a dry and weary land, every drop of rain that might fall on the soil is maximized to more and better fruit. A tree that has uh, such a mature root base that it withstands uh, the droughts and the storms and the winds. A tree that is so fruitful and consistent and healthy and long-lasting that it goes for generations, blessing generation after generation with the exports of its fruit, producing oil for lamps to light up the darkness in our world, nourishing and bringing delight to hungry people around the world. And our text, actually in Romans chapter 11, will draw wonderfully on the image and the metaphors of the wild versus the cultivated olive tree, with the, olive, with the wild trees being equated to Gentiles and the cultivated uh, trees uh, being equated to the Jews and, and the people and the family of God. So there you have it, our nifty nine. Context setting ingredients to be primed so that God can paint his story in our minds and on our hearts as we read it. So, bear with me. I'm going to close by reading chapters 9 through 11. All right? You can follow along the screen. You can close your eyes. It, I, I struggled with this because I know half of you are going to be like, I'm tired of hearing your voice already. All right? I get it. I'd be too. No fault to you. All right? But it's just so beautiful, and it has to be read together, and it ends. Oh, the ending is so good. Just hang on, all right? Romans chapter 9. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption of sons. Theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all forever. Praise. Amen. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time I'll return and, and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebecca's ch uh, children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. 
Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It is not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I may display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us whom he also called, not only from the Jews but also from the Gentiles? As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people. I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And it will happen that in that very place where it was said to them, you are not my people. They will be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on the earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, who would have become like Sodom? We would have become like Gomorrah. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles uh, who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued the law of righteousness, has not attained it. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge, since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, They did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law. So there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses describes in this way the righteousness that is by the law. The man who does does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we are proclaiming. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. 
But not all Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. But I ask, did they not hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. And again, I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. And Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. But concerning Israel, he says, all day long I have held up my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his own people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed their knee to bow. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer by works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. What then? What Israel sought so earnestly, it did not obtain, but the elect did. The others were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes so they could not see, and ears that they could not hear to this very day. And David says, May their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see, and their backs be bent forever. Again I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? I am talking to you Gentiles in as much as I am talking to the apostles. I, I am the apostles to the Gentiles. I make much of, this, of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection is a reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not boast over those bran- other branches. Over those branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted. But they were broken off because of unbelief. And you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in Again, after all, 
If you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced the hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved as, as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies on your account. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts are his call, and, his, and his call are irrevocable. Just as you, who are once, uh, were at one time disobedient to God, have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound all men over to disobedience so that they may have mercy on them all. Here comes the closing part. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's stand. The music team come up. I'm going to close in prayer. And then uh, we'll seal it off with a song. Lord, first I thank you for the grace that everyone in this room and online has <laughs> extended to me in the way that I discerned that we are to start this next chunk of your word. Lord, I pray that the words that I have shared, uh, that that which is of you would cut right to our hearts, and that which isn't would just fall to the ground, that by your spirit you would minister to us today and in the week to come the seeds that are to be planted in our hearts, that we might know that it is your word speaking to us and that it is designed to bear eternal fruit in us and through us, and that we would be great farmers of your word, great farmers of the seed in which you have given to us through your word here today, Lord. So, Father, we ask you to guard, help us guard, uh, that which you have deposited within us, that it would come to bear much fruit. Protect your church, watch over your church, bless your church in all these ways and more. We thank you today that you have grafted us into your eternal family. That we get to share in that nourishing root of salvation, of promise for all who believe. That it is simply by faith that we can become a child of yours. Lord, may that keep us humble, and may that keep us hungry. We love you, Lord, and we're here today and this week to know you, to serve you, to love you, enjoy you, and to be a great light in a dark world. May you shine through us today and this week, we pray. In your name, amen. Let's seal off our time together here today.